Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, I'm Jason Daniel Schwartz, researcher for the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. Welcome to On the Environment. Florida is a strange place, host to a wealth of impressive landscapes and peculiar residents, both human and non-human. Conserving those landscapes and non-human residents is a big, constantly unfolding project. Few people can boast a more significant impact on Florida's conservation than Gary Knight, our guest today. He is the director of Florida Natural Areas Inventory, a working group of scientists sponsored by Florida State University that documents and distributes information about Florida's biodiversity and habitats. Over the course of two decades, FNA's data has contributed to the protection of 2.6 million acres of Florida's natural heritage. Gary Knight comes to New Haven as a Dorothy S. McCluskey Fellow in Conservation at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. And we're very happy to ha- be talking with him today. Gary, Na- Gary Knight, welcome. Thank you. Uh, first, can you tell us a little bit about the particular conservation needs of Florida? Um, what is urgent in the natural landscape, and what is the political landscape like? Florida is one of the most biodiverse states in the entire country. We have an enormous amount of uh, unique species that uh, are found in Florida and nowhere else, rare species. And we're also one of the largest uh, states, the state's most rapidly growing, so we're losing a lot of land uh, at a very alarming rate. Uh, Florida has uh, had a mixed uh, history of uh, conservation in terms of political perspective. Uh, We have been successful uh, over uh, more than 20 years for uh, acquiring and protecting environmentally sensitive lands. Today's uh, political landscape is more conservative, and the state is, in addition to considering new acquisitions, is in the process of surplusing some lands as well. So there's a real challenge in terms of uh, helping people understand the uh, critical importance of conservation in Florida. So in brief, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the process, how does landscape conservation at the state level work? And how, how, is, how is that particular to Florida? One particularly important piece of uh, the puzzle for uh, conservation in Florida is almost all environmental land acquisition is through willing sellers. We're able to get some very important ecological resources, but the landowner has to be uh, interested and willing to uh, work with the state to, to get there. The state also uh, negotiates uh, to try to create uh, the best value for the uh, taxpaying public. So. It creates some real challenges in terms of buying some of the most important places because we have to have willing sellers to begin with, and the state is trying to get a good deal for the taxpayer. But even with that, uh, we have been very successful, as you mentioned, 2.6 million acres over the last 20-plus years. So how do you fit in then? I mean, so much of what FNA does, uh, uh, what it produces, looks like GIS maps or censuses of species, science-oriented information communicated in technical ways. Can you explain how the measurements and other work that FNA does ends up contributing to Florida's conservation programs? Sure, uh, and it's important to remember that in addition to the data that the Florida Natural Areas Inventory provides, we have uh, a lot of expertise with our staff. We've got a staff of 22 individuals uh, with uh, biological uh, or ecological background, botany, zoology, ecology. We have GIS specialists, data managers, uh, conservation planners, And so in addition to the data that's presented, oftentimes in a GIS format, uh, we've got that uh, generations of expertise that our scientists uh, come to the table with as well. 
But uh, our program, because we are affiliated with Florida State University and we're not uh, associated with a particular federal, state, local government agency, we're able to work across jurisdictions and able to be involved with conservation decisions at uh, federal, state, local government levels, as well as private, and therefore uh, help bring a unified approach to conservation planning in the state where uh, information that might not be shared across agencies, when we're at the table, we can help make that happen. So maybe we can, we can get a sense for how this works in practice, you know, the way that all of these 22 uh, ecologists and biologists and GIS specialists actually get measurement into the hands, in usable measurement, usable data into the hands of decision makers. So you guys work with a conservation program at, in Florida called the Florida Forever Program. It's a major state initiative to protect vital lands. It has protected almost 700,000 acres since its inception in 2001 many of which are eva were evaluated and recommended by FNA. Um, so you and your team go through a multi-level process to determine which land should be preserved and why and, and how. Uh, can you walk us through, step-by-step, step, um, how your organization performs that process? Sure. I, uh, I'll give you a somewhat simplified approach because it's a, a, a very involved uh, program. But uh, basically, uh, our program has developed what we call a conservation needs assessment, where we had to have a really solid foundation of data, uh, rare species occurrence information, good aerial photography, and other information as a as starting point. But with that information and information about other uh, important ecological resources like water, we developed prioritized maps for the entire state at a very fine scale that allows us to look at individual properties and see how they contribute to the state's acquisition needs. Uh, so there's a remote aspect to it where we're using existing information and data. That's a starting point for the evaluation process. It gives an advisory council that makes decisions about which lands are to be acquired uh, the information it needs to make informed decisions. Uh, and it does so cost effectively because we're doing it without visiting every property that uh, comes in front of the council. Uh, after that initial uh, review, the council will make decisions about which projects will continue on in the process. And for those that are recommended for full review, we will actually go out in the field uh, and do uh, a site inspection where we will spend several days looking at the property and, and describing it in more detail than what we've got in just our databases and the remote information that we have access to. Given those reports, the state's advisory council will consider properties and uh, either add them to the state's acquisition list or uh, let them go. And I should say that because uh, the state's acquisition process is a willing seller program, because the state is actively negotiating to get the best deals that it can, the acquisition list is more of a wish list than an actual, we're going to go out and buy each of these properties. So right now, the state has over 100 uh, properties on its uh, acquisition list. Uh, all of those properties will never be acquired which gives the state some opportunity to negotiate with landowners and, and try to get a good deal. But uh, every property that goes on the list has gone through an extensive evaluation and uh, meets uh, the standards of what the state's looking for uh, in, in purchasing and protecting these properties. As far as, as, far as Florida's particular needs right now, as, um, as far as FNA thinks about it, or, or even you personally, um, what are some of the major uh, conservation needs in Florida? What are some of the places that need to be protected? What are some of the particular species that we need to be looking out for in Florida? Well, it's interesting. Actually, uh, one of the things that needs to happen most desperately in Florida is completing projects. 
Because again, we're dealing with individual landowners, we might have a, an overall project boundary that consists of multiple landowners, and the state has been successful at acquiring some of those. Um, but it's important for the ecological integrity of the site and for the management of the property to finish out that acquisition and to make a real effort to close out those projects and finish those pieces. Uh, we've done a really good job of protecting rare species habitat, some of the most underrepresented natural communities or habitats in the state. Uh, we're doing a good job, I think, of identifying ecological connectors and making sure that we have uh, landscape connectors that will be useful for, especially in uh, this age of climate change. Um, but one of the most important needs right now is after 20 plus years of acquiring projects, a lot of those projects are just partially completed and we need to focus on uh, finishing those, prop uh, those projects smartly. When you say completed, do you mean the real estate deal in particular, or do you mean some, some other sort of management plan? The, the real estate deal in particular. Once, once a state uh, acquires a piece of property, it goes on to the state's land management uh, uh, portfolio. So there are uh, land managers out managing the property, but it complicates their efforts if there are gaps in the ownership, uh, if the uh, property boundaries are, are too uh, sh shaped in odd ways. So it's uh, really important for, the, for us to acquire complete projects where we possibly can to give the land managers the best opportunity to be successful at managing those lands uh, uh, for the ecological values that they, they were purchased for. And this may, this may be pushing a little bit outside of the particularities of, of, um, of what FNA does, but um, you, you keep speaking about ownership. Um, uh, now, um, ownership is one of a number of tools that, that can be used to acquire lands for conservation. Is, is ownership the, the main paradigm in Florida? Are there other ones? That well, the, uh, that's a good question, and there are other uh, approaches. Uh, there's fee simple land acquisition in which the state acquires all the rights of the property, owns the property, and manages it uh, itself. But more and more, a lot of the properties are being acquired uh, through less, less than fee uh, conservation easements where the landowner retains uh, the original landowner retained some ownership rights. Oftentimes they stay on the property and we're bu buying development interest or development rights as opposed to uh, buying uh, the entire property. That does have its downsides in terms of uh, the public generally doesn't have access to conservation easements, but at the same time, uh, land management cost, which can be really uh, ex expensive, uh, that burden is borne by the land, the person living on the land rather than the state in those cases. But those are the two primary approaches to conservation in Florida. Uh, fee simple land acquisition in which the property becomes a state park, a state wildlife management area, a state forest, or less than fee in which the original landowner uh, retains some rights and stays on that property. Of those two tools, do, do you see um, certain conservation or uh do you see certain benefits or, or relative benefits or, or pros and cons uh, to one or the other from a conservation standpoint? The, the public gets its greatest value when the state goes in and acquires uh, fee simple. Uh, oftentimes when we're buying conservation easements, we're still paying a very significant portion of the uh, original value of the property, and yet the public's not getting access to, to the property. Also, it's hard to control how the private landowner manages the property. And in Florida, because uh, the landscape is primarily a, uh, a fire-adapted landscape requiring prescribed fire to keep the uh, ecological communities in, in good health, 
it's harder to uh, require a private property owner to put fire in the landscape to maintain the health of the property than it is than if the state owns and, and manages the property directly. It's a really interesting point about the public, and it actually brings up a, a question that that I have um, looking over FNA's site. You know, um, so much, so much of the information that you present is. Um, requires a certain level of ecological or technical aptitude to navigate. And then a lot of that then ends up going sort of um, up the chain to decision makers and legislators. Um, and so I wonder, just looking at, at this process, what, what role the general public has in all of this? Um, wh- where do they come in? It's a great question, and uh, it also ties into uh, why I'm here as a McCluskey Fellow, I think, or what I want to accomplish while I'm here. Uh, we strive to make the information that we produce as relevant and uh, helpful to the general public as we possibly can. So the data are developed through public workshops. Uh, All the documentation is uh, available online. Uh, We make all the information that we can available to the public so they understand as much as they can understand the process that we're going through in our analysis and the recommendations that we make. But as you say, it's challenging for a a general uh, public Uh, to understand some of these data, and I'm hoping that uh, while I'm here at Yale, I'll be able to uh, work with uh, faculty and students and come up with some new ideas to maybe uh, come up with new ways of measuring conservation performance and getting those out to uh, the general public as well. But I also should say that uh, the scientific data that go into uh, informing uh, the state's land acquisition decisions and management decisions, that's just one piece to the overall puzzle. Uh, the state goes to considerable efforts to solicit public input. There's uh, many public meetings held throughout the course of a year in which the state is uh, actively seeking input from the general public about which lands should be protected, uh, about land management issues, how land should be managed. So the, the state does a really good job of going after public input as well. Any suspicions, predictions, uh, sort of pet projects? You don't need to give any proprietary uh, ideas away here, but 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 where, but what are what are some of those tools for future involvement uh, of the public, or just sort of future tools for um, uh, for sort of measurement based, data based, um, data driven conservation? As far as you can tell, one of the tools that uh, we've known about for a long time, but it's been really challenging to implement, is how to share information about the ecosystem values that uh, a natural landscape provides. So it's not just the number of species protected or the number of acres of habitat, but it's the improvement in water quality, the uh, protection from storms. Uh, We really don't do a very good job in the uh, conservation community of evaluating those uh, ecosystem values that can that are really important to general society and that a lot of people value, even if they're not interested in in natural areas. And I'm I'm hopeful that we'll be able to come up with some additional ways of getting at some of those ecosystem values that contribute to the overall good that uh, we're having a hard time measuring right now. Uh, Maybe a better question is, what has been working so far? How how have you been making a case as far as those values go? What what sorts of cases have been working best to state legislators, to state decision makers, and to the public as far as ecosystem services? We have been very successful at, uh, well, let me me step back. Uh, The the Florida legislature was generally unhappy with uh, how environmental land acquisition dollars were being spent uh, uh, 15 years ago. And... uh, said that they needed to have better information to help understand that the money was being spent wisely and appropriately. Uh, 
and it was, but uh, we were only uh, sharing information in, in pretty qualitative ways. The best example of this or the best example of, of that. So in, that's when we developed the conservation needs assessment as a response to that request for specific information. The legislature spelled out some specific resources that it wanted to see protected in its land acquisition program. Rare species habitat, underrepresented natural communities, ecological connectors, significant surface waters, a whole range of resources. And we developed uh, statewide maps that uh, evaluated uh, the, the, the quality, the priority of the landscape for those different resources. And we were able then to have a starting point for land acquisition and say, at this point in time, this is how well protected those resources were. Then given future acquisitions, we've been able to go in and take a, another look and say, this is how conservation action has actually contributed to the protection of those different resources. And we provide a biannual or a semi-annual, I should say, report to the legislature that spells out on a resource by resource basis, acre by acre, how many, uh, how much the, the state land acquisition efforts have contributed towards moving the needle for conservation. That said, those specific numbers, those acreages, um, are not terribly compelling to the general public. Uh, it needs to be tied to some thresholds or, or something more relative than what we're doing right now, and that's part of what I, I want to uh, get a better handle on why I'm here, to create numbers that are more compelling to both the legislature and the general public. And much of those, much of that, those numbers are going to end up being both biological and and ecological, but also economic. I would imagine that's right. And we have not been providing economic measures in the past, and I really think that that's going to be uh, an important con uh, uh, component to any future reporting that needs to be done. That's we've got to make uh, conservation relevant to everybody. Um, uh, protecting our natural areas is important to everybody. We've got to develop measures that uh, report that to them in ways that are meaningful to them. I think a, a really good example in this part of the country is climate change and uh, Superstorm Sandy. Uh, until Superstorm, Stan Superstorm Sandy came through, a lot of people, I don't think, fully appreciated uh, the importance of climate change. And it really hit home when such a, a massive storm had such a, a negative effect. Now, that's relevant in a destructive way or a harmful way. And I think we can come up with uh, measures also that get at how conservation is contributing in a posi positive way to people's lives and start doing a better job of sharing that information with the general public. Sure. I mean, when you think of Florida, well, when I think of Florida, I think of, I think of a state that is often battered by big storms and, and, and has to deal with that on a regular basis. So, so maybe those kinds of uh, you know, storm-based or disaster-based arguments are a little bit tougher to make as a kind of higher threshold uh, in Florida. But when I also think of Florida, when, also, when I think of Florida, I also think of tourism. I think of I think of people coming to the state to see a lot of the, that that those those kind of natural wonders or or, or those strange species and landscapes. And I, and I wonder how much tourism is is kind of entering into um, the kinds of calculations and numbers that. that that, F that FNA is, is producing? Well, I do think that the legislature, the people that make decisions about budgets and, and how many dollars are going towards conservation, they fully appreciate that uh, tourism is the number one industry in the state of Florida. Uh, and uh, people are coming, not, coming to Florida not only to go to Disney World or to uh, Cape Canaveral. They're coming to see our natural areas, come to our beaches, come uh, swim in our springs. 
Uh, and Florida has uh, an incredible wealth of, of natural resources, of ecological diversity, and people do appreciate that, and they do see it tied to uh, their own personal uh, values uh, at home. They know that people are coming to uh, visit these places and experience these things. And ecotourism is becoming more and more important as well. Uh, Florida is a birding capital for the country. A lot of people come to Florida specifically to go look for birds. And uh, you've got to have uh, the natural habitats available for them to, uh, to be there uh, to attract that, uh, that audience. So one of the secrets to success in Florida, our, uh, our conservation efforts over the years, has been that we have tied the, the value of those ecosystems of natural areas of conservation to tourism, and people do appreciate that value. That's one place where I think we've done a job, a good job of uh, selling to people why conservation is important beyond just uh, the plants and animals themselves. Indicators are very useful because they can they can be standardized to provide baselines and measure progress and performance across scales, state scales, na- national scales, international, cosmic. Um, doing this, we find that doing this at the ecological and biological level, doing ecological and biological indicators has been extremely difficult. Um, um, and you know, we have our ideas about what some of those some of the barriers to doing that are. But but what do you see as some of the challenges and barriers to achieving strong measurement of biological and ecological indicators? Why why are they so hard to attain across that, scales? It's a very real issue, and uh, the the main problem is a lack of uh, consistent information across uh, jurisdictions. Um, but with that said, I can say also that. Uh, uh, the Florida Natural Areas Inventory is part of an international network of programs that all use common standards and methodologies to collect and manage data. It's the Natural Heritage Network that's administered by the organization NatureServe. And through, through NatureServe and the work of uh, all the natural heritage programs around the Western Hemisphere, we're able to do analyses across jurisdictions. And are the closest thing to a national scorecard for biodiversity uh, would grow out of the work of NatureServe. But uh, that said, uh, there's still real challenges uh, from state to state, the data that are available. Uh, having really excellent aerial photography uh, is an important first step. Having, we're getting closer with that uh, this day and age, but having interpreted land cover is uh, really important as well. And that's definitely a very unequal uh, data set in terms of uh, quality information available across the country. So having consistent quality information about some of these fundamental basic data sets uh, is, is one of the biggest challenges. Having organizations like NatureServe that develop standards that programs across jurisdictions can apply is one of the solutions to, to get at that problem. It's very, very interesting. I mean, uh, we find, you know, that even the very fact that each, you know, each region has its own specific uh, kind of temperate, temperate or, or um, you know, altitude issues or, or proximity to, to uh, the ocean or different types of uh, river systems. I mean, all of these things tend to make, tend to stymie the, um, any kind of effort to kind of standardize um, biological uh, issues. But um, it's, Fascinating to hear that there are organizations that are that are dealing directly with it. Um, we we've spent spent a little bit of time with some some museums um, up here who are who are doing incredible work at preserving um, indicators, uh, biological information that might even just be uh, 
specific to single watersheds. And you, you look at the kind of information that's required to do that, a kind of collections of, of different organisms and, and even, you know, storage of, you know, l- tiny little packets of water. And, and it's truly incredible to think that over 30 years across species and across landscapes, you, you could probably amass, you could probably fill warehouses upon warehouses of information and still not, still not really get at, get to the, get to the kind of end of, end of that collection. So it's, it's, it's a massive amount of work to, to begin with. It, it is truly a massive amount of work, and it requires foresight uh, to start the process early and to, to continue to build on it. And uh, in some places, uh, programs that have started, uh, the emphasis on data collection has slowed su- significantly, even though they really haven't met a threshold of having sufficient information to be able to make these kinds of measures across uh, some of the jurisdictions. So uh, there are still gaps uh, of information in terms of being able to do this as well as we ought to be able to do it. And uh, any kind of analysis is really only as good as its least common denominator at some point. And that does create uh, issues where the information that's available is less precise and therefore less compelling. Why now when it seems like there, um, some, of these, uh, some of these questions are becoming dire and dire, dire and dire, more and more urgent. You know, we, we constantly hear about um, huge increases in biodiversity loss. Obviously, climate change is changing habitats everywhere. Why now? Why, why now are these, are these collections starting to ebb? What, what, what's going on as far as you can tell? Well, it is uh, a cross-disciplinary uh, question, I think. Uh, and I, I assume it possibly relates to the uh, recession and the declining economy when people are worried about jobs and other uh, personal security. Some of the issues such as conservation and, and data development are less important and those, get, uh, those uh, public concerns get uh, converted into uh, budgets that uh, aren't as supportive of, of this work. And that's again what I really would like to be able to accomplish. Uh, it's an ambitious idea but to be able to say that preserving our natural environment, uh, our, our natural world, is so critically important. It crosses all issues, and we, we need to uh, make as much progress as we can while we can. And part of uh, making that message more compelling is um, finding ways that uh, are meaningful to uh, as broad a, an audience as we possibly can. Well, I mean, you, you and FNA have been... Uh, by any measure, quite successful um, at, at getting conservation done in a politically contentious environment. And so, what what's the key to that success? One of the one of the keys, I think, is uh, the public can see. Well, environmental land acquisition can be when you're spending six billion dollars, which is what the state spent over the last twenty years. Uh, there's a lot of room for uh, uh, corruption, for dollars to be misspent. When the state, when the public sees that the best lands, the very best lands are, are being acquired uh, and that uh, the dollars are being spent wisely, I think that really comes home to them and that it's a program that they should continue to support. So I think the proof is in the pudding that when they see that the state is actually spending dollars on the most important places, that we're protecting the most important uh, sea turtle nesting areas, we're protecting the most important tropical hardwood forest. We're, we're protecting the largest expanses of dry prairie left in the world. We're preserving habitat for uh, endangered red woodpeckers. And they can see that these are some of the best places that are being protected and that the money's being well spent. I do think that 
there is a that's part of why the program has been successful that uh, it is that funding is being spent in the right places and that the public can see results results of that I think there are two aspects to why we've been able to do that one is the science-based information uh, that our program uh, helps provide to inform the decisions another is the fact that there is an advisory council that makes the final decisions on environmental land acquisition in the state. This a multi-agency, it's a 10-person council with four agencies represented and six private citizens on the council who spend a lot of time looking at the data that we provide and uh, make good decisions. So having science-based data to help inform the decisions and then not putting the power, the authority to make those decisions in any one person or one agency's hand, but sharing that across uh, an advisory group like this, that has helped ensure that we've been able to make wise decisions in terms of how those public dollars are being spent. And seeing those public dollars spent wisely means the public's more likely to support uh, this work. All, all of these efforts uh, to protect to protect these places are, are under new threats because of climate change. Um, now, as we said before, Florida is a place that is that has really always dealt with climate climate related challenges. Um, how does how does climate change uh, affect um, how, how do political or or actual climate issues related to climate change uh, affect uh, Florida's conservation scene? Are are, are there ecological and bi- biological data that um, are coming into play uh, to affect? debates about climate change or climate in Florida? Climate change is an enormous issue for the state of Florida. Uh, uh, At the bottom end of uh, sea level rise projections is one meter. Uh, If sea level rises one meter in the next 90 years, uh, 5% of the state will be underwater. And a big part of that, of course, is the coastline, where we've already invested a lot of funding to protect Florida's coastline. It's one of the most attractive parts to tourists and others uh, for and and a lot of those lands will be inundated with, with sea level rise. And so climate change is a, a really big, big issue. Um, another really big challenge for us is the Florida Keys. The Florida Keys have a unique biodiversity, unique geography. They're special in all sorts of ways. Uh, we've spent a lot of resources down there trying to protect that those ecological resources. And yet a big part of the Keys is going to be underwater uh, by the end of this century. And it's affecting how we uh, make future priorities. Um, so there'll be less acquisition directly on the coast than there has been in response to the threat of sea level rise. In response to climate change in general, we're putting more effort into developing ecological connectors, giving uh, species, whatever their uh, habitat needs might be, the room to move from one, one place to the next as, as climate changes. Um, so those are two of the bigger issues that we, we have to address. A land management issue uh, is uh, the threat of invasive exotic species where their numbers are, are growing and they're uh, moving further north with uh, warmer, uh, warmer temperatures. So uh, another big challenge for Florida with related to climate change is the threat of uh, invasive exotic species. Gary Knight. Uh, I wish you uh, the best of luck in your research while you're here at Yale and moving forward uh, in conservation of Florida. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate the opportunity.